society will just come apart at the seams if we can't do that, if we can't determine what is real and what isn't. This is the Futurist exclusive live event for the, the I was going to say the 12, 12th anniversary, Rob, but the 12, uh, 12 month anniversary, the one year anniversary. Joining me are the hosts of the Futurists, Rob Tursak, Brian Solis, Katie King. Welcome to the Futurists all. Yes, welcome to the future. Indeed. We said we'd see you in the future and here we are, so... Um, I wanted to just, uh, let's start off with, um, uh, just, um, giving a bit of highlights. Uh, let me ask you guys first, um, who, who's your favorite guest that we've had on the show, uh, this year? Oh my gosh. That's a tough question. Like how many guests have we had, Brad? Well, one guest per week. Uh, we yeah, only had, uh, so it must be at least 50 guests. Right. right. Fair enough. Okay. That's good. Man, we've had so many talented people with so many different varied backgrounds. I'm thinking that I like Tanya Hardy. I thought she was great. The NASA mission controller who did the flight to Mars. I thought that was a really fun episode. Um, I also got a real kick out of talking to Julian Bleeker um, because he has such a fun practice. His design practice is so super interesting. But gosh, I mean, I could go on all day. Well, you know, some of the highlights for me, um, you know, like some of the big, big guests, um, obviously, you know, the sci-fi guys. So Kevin J. Anderson, yeah. David Brin are always fun. Um, David course, Brin. Just, we just recorded another show with David Brin and another show with Kevin J. Anderson, and they're both uh, just incredible thinkers. David um, Brin's a trip, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, on that, on that. That uh, recording that we did for an upcoming episode with Kevin J. Anderson was actually my favorite. Uh, that was, oh, cool. in fact, I, I, it was it was so much my favorite that it was happening in real time where I was just lulled into silence. I could just listen to him talk all day. And he's just incredibly electric. He just exudes this positive energy of which you know, we need more of that in our lives. Yeah, he's a, he's a great example of. Like, um, you know, you, you look at him, he's um, had something like 60 New York Times bestsellers, <laughs> which is incredible. Huh. Like, you know, um, like, you know, you look at someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, right? He's got five or six New York Times bestsellers and you think he's incredibly successful. Kevin J. Anderson turns out a new New York Times bestseller every year, right? You know, um, he was saying on his, on the interview in the 90s, he was producing 12 books a year. <laughs> Which, <laughs> as an author, I can't even like <laughs> comprehend that. Right? I, I, That's not I, writing. I was thinking about like if I did twelve articles in a year, that would be an achievement. Let alone books. <laughs> yeah, but it, not only that, but you know how uh, like in the first episode, this is one of the things we we learned. Um, you know, is that how he does his books? is he goes on a hike and he has a dictaphone and he records mm. the, the the book into the dictaphone and then his assistant, you know, transcribes it later. Right on. Um, which, again, I can't even imagine <laughs> doing that, to, you know, especially when he's got all these plot lines and so forth that particularly for like writing in the Dune universe, keeping all these plot lines in his head so that he can uh, do that. It, it's just extraordinary. Let's turn uh, it back to the futurists. Uh, for the folks who are just joining the room, you are watching the first anniversary live stream of the Futurist show. I'm Rob Tursik, my co-host, Brett King, and our guest hosts, Brian Solis and Katie King, a.k.a. Miss Metaverse. Hey, hey, Miss Metaverse, how's that tagline working out for you these days? Metaverse is not quite as cool. A little of the shine has come off the Metaverse. Listen, I I was using the Metaverse decades ago before anyone knew what the Metaverse even was. Mm. First of all, I think the Metaverse needs to be reclaimed because the yeah. Metaverse originally meant multiple realities. You know, I mean, we're, we're cruising right into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Apple's about to drop this mixed reality headset. They've been tantalizing us with it for years. Now it's finally coming. So who knows? Don't rule out the metaverse. It's just around the corner. As uh, well, we also Stolten's have been talking about metaverse 2.0, you know, it's going to be a 2.0, a 3.0. So keep evolving for sure. Right on. And also let's, uh, let's keep in mind that Neuralink just got approval for human trials. So we're, uh, 
we'll see some kind of other metaverse as well. Some something yeah. that we might plug into. I think they called it the Matrix back in the day. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, that's been one of the themes, as Brett was just saying a minute ago. Um, one of the themes of the show is that science fiction is what inspires every single person we talk to. Uh, we always do this little Q&A with our guests, and they um, we always ask them, what story or what science fiction inspired you? And everyone's got a story. Like, they don't hesitate. They all know their first science fiction movie or their first science fiction show uh, or film that they that they were inspired by. Uh, and it's uh, it's really tightly woven into even like, you know, hardcore scientists and researchers, uh, they've all been inspired by some narrative. So for part of our show, we always interview science fiction authors. Brett and I enjoy that. On uh, the other half, we've also been talking to people who aren't just thinking about the future, but people are making the future. And this is my favorite thing. I love those people. Uh, you know, our, our definition for this show's purposes, our definition of the term futurist is uh, not just somebody who writes about the future, but somebody that's actually actively working towards building their version of the future. And that's a key message for the people who are watching. It's like, look, the future is something that you can own. It's something that you can manage, you can manipulate, you can drive towards, you can shape it. It's up to you. Of course, if you don't do any of those things, you're going to be living in a future that somebody else invented. Somebody else defines, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the great um, illustrations that we had um, of futurist thinking on the show was uh, the episode with Thomas Frey. Yeah, that guy's great. Um, yes. Yeah, because he, he said, you know, he and I was just listening to the clip. I was trying to upload the clip for the stream today, but um, he demonstrated futurist thinking in real time. Yeah. So how he did that, he, he used two examples. One was a space hotel and the other was a robot dog, right? And in both instances, he sort of played out how, you know, you can think like a future. So, okay, you, you know, someone announces they're going to have a space hotel. So then you have a, he told it a series of firsts that you have associated with that. Who's going to be the first guest of the space hotel? Who's going to cook the first meal for the space hotel? Who are going to be the first entertainers that are on the space? <laughs> You know, like he started to extrapolate this and with the, you know, and with the robot dog, he was like, all right, so what does a dog do? Well, you could say it protects you, it provides companionship. So how is a robot dog going to protect you? Well, it has to be at a sense danger. So how do we code that in? You know, so that sort of um, demonstration of futurist thinking was a, sort of a unique highlight, I think, from yeah. um, this season as well. It was a real flex. He's awesome. That guy's a pro. He's been doing this a while and it shows. One of the things we noticed is that every person we interview has a methodology for thinking about the future. And that's part of what we're trying to impart to the audience is the idea that, you know, uh, thinking about the future isn't just um, an idle fantasy. It's a habit. It's an ex it's a it's a skill you can build. Uh, what's interesting is nobody has the same methodology. So for every person we've interviewed, they have their own unique methodology that they've arrived at. Some are much more um, much more fluent in it and aware of it. And others, it's kind of an unconscious thing. Um, what Brett just described is Thomas Frey. That's a great episode to listen to if you want to see futurist thinking demonstrated live. But we've had a number of, um, of folks that we would consider professional futurists demonstrate how they, how they do it, how they go about doing it. I mentioned Julian Bleeker a moment ago, um, and he's the person who created the Manual of Design Fiction. And his style is to actually make like a brochure. In fact, he's made like fake Ikea brochures for items from the future. I mean, he goes all the way towards building them. So he like realizes the future in a physical way. It's a super fun episode. Fun to talk to him about that. Um, David Matten, who writes the, uh, the New World Same Humans newsletter, he's a very thoughtful fellow from the UK. And he shared his methodology with us, uh, which was, uh, you know, he, he covers tech trends and sociological trends and where they intersect. And he said, look, technology changes constantly and not all trends last. Some trends come and go. But he said there's one constant. The one constant is human needs. And so if you take a new technology trend or some new capability and you ask yourself, how does this satisfy a human need? Does it do a better job than what we, what we currently have? And he said, if that's the case, then you can predict pretty reasonably that's going to be very successful. I thought that was kind of a cool approach. Uh, and another person who uses that humanistic approach is Rohit Talwar. In fact, yeah. he spent yeah. quite a bit of time talking about um, how to think and how to communicate with people uh, about their concerns about the future. And we joke around a lot about, you know, things like the AI apocalypse on the show. Uh, you know, that's always kind of a lively source of gags for us. But the truth is, a lot of people don't find the future a fun thing to think about because it's scary to them. 
Yeah. And in Rohit's practice, he has to work with corporations where they're very resistant to change. And he has a very human-centered f- focus. Uh, in fact, I think that's what we called that, uh, that show, the uh, human-centered future. And uh, he talks about nonviolent communication, which is a practice that you can do. And he, he applies that in corporate communications and what is in offices. That was, that was also a theme of John Hagel's interview, that's right. wasn't it? Yeah, right? Hagel was talking about how to deal with the fear of the future. He's a friend of David Brins. He's uh, he's the fellow who introduced uh, the concept of digital transformation. You know, that term, we kind of take it for granted now, but he actually coined the term back in the 90s. And in the 90s was an absolute powerhouse. Uh, his books like Net Gain uh, were really influential. And he's pivoted his entire consulting practice now to one thing, which is helping companies deal with fear, emotional resistance to change. He's decided that's the most high value thing he can do. So that was a fun episode with John Hagel. It is a little weird that like half the people we interview know each other. Uh, it makes me feel like we're creating a club. You know, maybe that's why it's called the Futurist Network. You know, we're creating a network of people. It well, feels it like is. that, doesn't it? Yeah. It is hey. a network. I mean, that's how Brett and I met. We were all part of one big community, yeah. really. I mean, I was on Brett's show back in what was it, 2015? You yeah. know, uh, back on Breaking Banks, and, and you know, I mean. Yeah. And, and another thing, too, I mean, there's so many wonderful people in the futurist community that I've met that have been on the show. I mean, uh, Harry Clore, you know, good friend of all of ours. And, you know, he's yeah. doing some awesome work on robot uh, avatars, which was a show, the robot avatar show. Uh, there's also Gerd Leonhard. He's been yeah, super Gerd. inspirational. Yeah. Gerd uh, Gerd's great. Show. And um, Ross Dawson, too. Ross Dawson, you know, I remember his futurist list. I mean, uh what what a great list just well that's what we went to that list to look at who we should invite on the show actually so (laughs) shout out to ross Um, the other one uh, i liked um was aubrey de gray i thought it was a big get to get aubrey you know um futurist specializing in in life extension and longevity but um one of the really cool things that i learned from aubrey's uh, episode was um you know i i've always maintained you know when i've written about longevity that um you know it's most likely going to end up as a treatment for the rich and he disabused us of that concept because he said you know the most expensive part of the healthcare system um you know in countries like the united states today is caring for the elderly so if you could give them longevity treatments to improve their um you know long-term quality of health then you reduce the overall healthcare cost to the system which is the first time i thought about it like that so you know there were some really amazing gems like that in in the uh in in the in you know like over and over you know speaking to these these uh, people with with incredible um, you know just nuggets you know Aubrey's an interesting fellow I've been interested in his work for more than 10 years I would guess about 15 years now and I've met him a couple of times Uh, but what's fun about doing a show like this is you get a chance to get to know people on a personal level he's such an approachable and friendly person Uh, he loves doing outreach because what he's talking about frankly most people are, are pretty resistant to the notion that you can extend human longevity or solve the problem of aging uh, and so he has to be out there in a very personal way to uh, persuade people to open up about that. We've had quite a few folks talk about health and longevity on the show. In addition to Aubrey de Grey, um, we had Dr. Daniel Kraft. This is the episode I got the most positive feedback from listeners on. Um, if folks aren't familiar with Daniel Kraft, uh, he runs the MedTech Conference in San Diego, and he's part of Singularity University, and he's a, a cancer researcher. And um, an absolute aficionado for future tech gear. So if you ever want to know about wearables uh, or quantify it itself, he is your go-to expert on the subject. And he gave us a whirlwind tour of all the advances that are happening right now uh, on Medical Frontiers. We also talked to Tony Hunter, uh, who is a food futurist, which I didn't even know. Was I thought name. that was pretty cool, actually. That's <laughs> yeah. cool. And a uh, very charming, very charming fellow. Uh, but he pointed out that food security is like a number one strategic uh, initiative for most countries, right? To make sure that their uh, their food is, uh, the, you know, their access to food is something they can rely on. And, uh, you know, of course, in the background, um, we've got this war going on in the Ukraine. And that's shut down a lot of the shipping out of the Black Sea. And a lot of the world's grain goes that way. And so uh, there was some real serious context to Tony Hunter's Otherwise, very lively and fun conversation. Um, And then we had a more serious conversation with Roger Holtzberg, who I know is a world builder and a former Disney Imagineer 
Um, but he had a brush with cancer himself and now has pivoted his entire practice towards technology that heals. So it's kind of a fun spectrum that you see. And one of the things we're noticing on the show is that the people who think about the future, when they see an opportunity, they're not afraid to reinvent themselves and go for it. We've already talked about a couple of those today. Um, but that seems to be a, a constant theme. If you're interested in the future, you're probably pretty interested in going for it. Uh, you know, one thing I noticed, even Brett, you've kind of turned me on to is um, while everybody has a different methodology, every futurist has an attitude as well. And they, right. they may have different methodologies, but they share the same attitude. Uh, I remember when I first started talking to Brett about doing the show, um, he said, I can't wait to live in that future. And I was like so charmed by that idea. But it turns out every person we've interviewed on the show, they share that that kind of sunny philosophy. Like we haven't talked to anybody who is an apocalyptic thinker or a doom and gloom person. I mean, even David Brin, who can go pretty far in either direction, in any direction, candidly, he's pretty <laughs> versatile. Uh, but even he, uh, I remember famously at the end of the first show, he was really excited because he said, we do have a chance. We have a chance for survival. It's kind of like his closing line on the show. Yeah. No, I, I think most of the guests we've had are fairly optimistic, wouldn't you yeah. say? Yeah, I think so. I think you that's know? a real theme. I, I think if you I, think about the future, you're an optimist. Hmm. Absolutely. I, well, it's, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to be in any conversation, whether it's thinking about the future or it's thinking about innovation or it's thinking about creating net new value. It's hard not to be an optimist and be successful on those fronts. And everyone, you know, to quote Steve Jobs, everyone's just looking to make their dent in the universe. And it's usually driven by solving a problem or creating an opportunity. Uh, and going back, Rob, to your point earlier about needs, you know, there are known needs and there are unknown needs. And I think that the magic there, uh, of chasing the what you know, what you know you don't know, and what you don't know you don't know uh, is magical. You're making my head explode. That is the Rumsfeld quote. That's, that's the that's the discipline, right? We Thinking we about... we did also have a futurist from Woking come on the show to talk about the future of payments and he's popped in to uh to say hello so dave birch let's uh let's <laughs> let's let's hey. welcome from working Love as that. one of the guests on the show it's nice hey, hey, guys how, how cool are you doing dave? This? hey <clears throat> what, yeah what's, good, what's right? life like in working are you in the well, future yet <laughs> today it's particularly sunny so it's very, very good actually. but um yeah i tuned in because that point you're making about uh, optimism, where that really applies at the moment, I'm, I'm just curious what you guys think about this, is around AI, because it's quite exciting. We're at some kind of cusp. Putting AI in the hands of you know millions of people rather than just a few corporations, you know, clearly is going to have some knock-on effects. And, uh, I, and I can certainly think of, you know, a tsunami of misinformation as being one of the impacts. But it's like, it's very dystopian, like all, all the commentary we see about this, you know, rapid increase in AI, it's become very dystopian. And so kind of what I want to ask you that's guys about is... Yeah, but that's the press, Dave. And we get that stuff in the press. But the press these days is all about sensationalism and hitting yeah. the you know, hitting the disgust button or the anger button. They push these red emotions because that's what gets people to click. On our show, what, what Brett was just saying is that consistently what we're getting is people who are very sunny and optimistic. And we're not talking to random strangers. We've interviewed some of the top AI researchers. Um and that includes people like um, Roman Yampolsky, yep. uh, who's an AI safety researcher, very pragmatic, yeah. great interview. If you, if you want to hear about someone who's dealing with the real issues, the safety issues, uh, and he's not alarmist in any way. Ben Gertzel spoke about it. Dr. Philip Elveda talked about a world where we're constantly monitored, which sounds creepy and Orwellian. And I pressed him on the subject, uh, but he actually responded in a very positive and sunny, op optimistic way. So I think the, the trend that we're seeing is that people that are working on these issues, uh, like literally building the AIs, uh, they're not as concerned. Uh, they're pretty pragmatic about it. So I think I would say there, don't don't believe the hype. We're trying to pop the hype bubble. Yeah, actually, uh, David Brin made an interesting point when we had him on the first um, 
you know, one one of the early episodes um, talking about dystopian versus utopian um, uh, science fiction movies, and he made the point that it's cheaper to produce dystopian sci-fi movies than it is, uh, you know, <laughs> utopian sci-fi music movies. So that's why we get so many dystopian future because you can get burned out buildings is a lot easier to find than yeah. you know futuristic interfaces <laughs> with tons of CGI, right? Well, well, in a happy world full of abundance is a pretty boring world, candidly, for a movie. You know, the movies need conflict <laughs> in order to make the movie go. So yeah, that's a good point. We're but you know, um, we. In the in the quick fire lightning rounds, we always ask that question: What sort of future do you hope for, um, or what science fiction is representative of the future you hope for? And so many, you know, um, talked about the Star Trek future as being right. what they hoped for, which is a testimony to to uh, Gene Roddenberry for sure. Yeah. But yeah, a future with no government, and no no apparent government, and no apparent politics. That's what they're and talking no about. No money. Right. <laughs> or as we talked about the other day on the David Brin show, Tim Stanley Robinson in Ministry of the Future. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently they're going to name David shared that they're thinking about naming a department, uh, the Ministry of the Future. That'd be pretty cool. What an honor for a sci-fi writer. We have a question from Mark Sylvester. Uh, hi, Mark. Good. Hey, good Mark. To see you here. Uh, his question is in three to five planning cycles. What are things that leaders should be considering that are not obvious? So the non-obvious three to five year planning cycles. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the 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 most immediate thing I can think of in terms of AI is we are very soon going to start to see the world divided into two groups of people: those who are powered by AI or corporations powered by by AI, and those who are arguing why the traditional way of business is better right you know which is the story of everything you know the internet disruption and so forth um so if you're in a planning cycle next three to five years you have to think about how to augment yourself and your business with ai i'd say i'd say that but um maybe katie brian what are your thoughts one of the things that bothers me about ai right now is that we don't we don't think like futurists or scenario planners or optimists. We we do inherently bring in that dystopian response, which is in times of uncertainty, cut. And that is essentially what we started to see with IBM uh, and their announcement, uh, the British Telecom recently, uh, and essentially AI being used to replace people uh, is sort of that natural tendency of where executives want to go or leaders want to go. Whereas if you reframe the question as to how could these roles be augmented with AI to net gain or net produce uh, growth in five, seven, 10 X in today's output, what yields would that give to the business? And would it actually drive greater profitability and net new revenue uh, versus reduced costs? Uh, and streamlined and, and you, you know, kind of get let me into this on that brian because that's a yeah. really good point which is uh you know companies are not just cutting costs they're cutting people right we're seeing mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people laid off in the tech sector and now the media business is laying people off and it's kind of rippling through the economy maybe that's something companies need to do right now maybe they overhired before the pandemic but um one thing they're not investing in heavily is employee education workforce right. training and my sense is uh, if, if I were running a business right now, I would be asking myself, how can AI augment every person on my team? You know, not mm -hmm. just a handful of people, but rather, you know, the, really, I think the benefit of something like ChatGPT, a generative text thing, is that it brings mediocre writers up a notch. It's not so much a, a good writers need to use it, um, but for a lot of people aren't good writers. You know, half of them are below average, of course. And it can be really powerful to help people communicate better. Uh, it can manage, you know, there's a lot of places it can streamline process um, and it doesn't necessarily need to lead to cuts. But I think companies right now are not thinking so much about how to enhance employees. They're trying to think about how to replace employees. That might not be the right thought process. Hey, uh, I, Rob, you're, you're exactly right. This is this is exactly the time for optimistic futurism, because essentially what we're being challenged with as a human race is how do we live with artificial intelligence? And yeah. it's a choice. Uh, we either let it happen to us, uh, right? And that's leaving it to leaders, decision makers, to think the way that they always have uh, and uh, take new technology to automate scale, make things more efficient, uh, and or it's an opportunity to reinvent 
imagine what the future looks like, what the role of business in society looks like, uh, and then the role AI can play in augmenting our capacity. We get to invent that. We get to create that. So we're all pretty optimistic. Why are people so pessimistic? I mean, like the story is always AI. Well, but but Here. but here's the thing that we've often agreed on, disagreed on on the show, Rob, which is the impact of AI in respect to techno unemployment. Right? You know. Well, we've had debates on 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 the show in yeah. this respect. You know, I've always maintained that this is going to be a game changer. That certainly in the mid 2030s, we're going to see large scale technology unemployment, and for exactly this reason, is that as AI, you know, we start to trust AI and use it in place of humans in so many areas. You either have to retrain people on mass, mm -hmm. and then you've got the Andrew Yang question about the five million truck drivers in the United States. How many of them really want to be coders? You know, and and so this is. Um, yeah, I think they don't, they don't have to be coders, right? The way you're framing okay. the question answers itself, right? Uh, I mean, not to quibble, but uh, you know, look, here's a here's what I'm seeing happening. Um, as companies shut employees, the, in the past, you would get hired by another company, right? If you got great tech skills, and you're getting fired by a tech company. You're probably getting hired by another company, but at, when, at a time when they're all laying people off. What we're starting to see is a proliferation of startup businesses. Mm -hmm. I spoke to a fellow the other day that runs an incubator uh, or an accelerator, I should say, and um, he's trying to automate the process of capital allocation because he said there's going to be such a flood, such an abundance of AI-funded startup companies that only have a handful of people in them, but they'll be able to do a great deal. So he's trying to speed up the process of capital allocation. To me, that's very forward thinking, right? To, the, to Mark Sylvester's question about what should we be looking at in the future, uh, the problem that fellow is trying to solve is if there's an abundance of new companies, then how can I match them with investors much faster with much less friction where the startups don't have to fly across the country to talk to investors and so forth? He's going to eliminate that friction and thereby speed up or accelerate the process. That seems a pretty future focused idea. We, we do have a question from Johan Diedrichs. He said, uh, what are thoughts on open source personal private AI protecting individuals from exploitative AI from corporations. I like that he also added the optimistic line because he certainly <laughs> yeah. can read <laughs> to the contrary. So, so uh, I would say Johan's right on the money in the sense that the uh, where the momentum is shifted in the last two months is towards open source AI. And that has a lot to do with the fact that uh, Meta's Llama um, LLM slipped into the public domain inadvertently you know so it's now become open source i don't think they intended it to be that way um, but as a result there's been a proliferation of now independent teams including individuals uh, running that large language model and in innovating with it and what we're starting to see now is literally hundreds of new product launches every week for a while i was trying to keep up with it um and i found it's just a treadmill it's a it's a mugs game to try to keep up with all the new innovation in ai because there could be a hundred new products released in a single day. Like you simply can't evaluate every single one of them. And now this whole newsletter is devoted to it. Uh, so on the one hand, um, uh, open open source is accelerating innovation, but I think also it's uh, developing tools for individuals so that we'll be able to select our own tool set. And I actually think this is going to be a responsibility everybody has. Start to evaluate your own workflow and then identify the right tools to help you automate where you need it. Well, you know, when we look at AI in particular, the EU is sort of starting to lead regulation in this respect, um, well, e EU and China. Um, but there is a debate around privacy and whether privacy is eliminated with artificial intelligence. In fact, that was always Jack Ma's uh, position, right, is that pr privacy wouldn't exist in the future in the same way we have it today. But maybe we'll ask Dave to join us back here for a second. Um, Dave, you know, how, do, how does AI affect uh, privacy considerations? I mean, I think that point is is actually a very strong one. And I, you know, you were talking earlier on about literature and that, you know, somehow that gives us a better framework for thinking about the future. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things about the kind of you know, Neil Stevenson, William Gibson view of things is that it may well be that we don't have any privacy in the real world anymore. Um, and that actually accelerates our push to live, work and play kind of in the metaverse, because in the metaverse, that will be the place where you actually have privacy because of, you know, because of cryptography and zero knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption, and all these kind of things. 
walking down the street, you have no privacy. There's cameras everywhere and everyone's got a phone. Uh, every single person with a phone is recording you and putting it on Facebook and all this kind of thing. So, so the metaverse in many ways will become a more attractive place um, to actually interact with people. And that may accelerate the push. So, you know, people think of the metaverse very much in terms of the interface. They think of, you know, Fortnite or, or Call of Duty or something. They, they, and they think but of- But it's the, also how your digital twin will be yeah, set up, right? The point is it's not, it's, you know, the metaverse isn't just about like the, how it looks and the VR and the rat. It's also like right. the infrastructure of it. And right. that I, I think there are some, there are some reasons for thinking that there are aspects of the infrastructure of the metaverse will actually be more appealing to people. Not just simple things like money and stuff like that. But Dave, if I could build on that, it's not just the metaverse. We're actually talking about the next iteration of the web itself is far more attractive in that regard because of the of what we're seeing with web three technologies where we're actually going to give the user more control. We're going to give the user control of their data. That data becomes part of their wallet, which becomes part of their identity of which they take with them. It's, in fact, most organizations, whether that's a business or whether that's an e-tailer, whether anybody who transacts, they're not, they're not ready for this world. In fact, it's going to completely disrupt their, their mechanisms for revenue, employee relations. We have to now start thinking about this world of where people like you and me are are in control of those experiences, and that'll happen well before the metaverse. We're used we're used to uh, we're used to uh, the internet because I mean, and lots of people say this same thing. You know, the internet in retrospect, it was a bad idea to build it without an identity layer. It was a bad idea to build it without a payments layer. We you know the metaverse won't be like that. You know, the implications of that, I think, you you were saying what are the non-obvious implications? Like right now, you know, I go to my Facebook feed, I go to, to Instagram or whatever, you know, I see a picture of, I see a picture of, you know, Winston Churchill playing table tennis with, with Henry VIII and it looks completely realistic and I have no idea whether it's real or not. And because I'm a moron, I don't understand any, any history. Or, like you can show people anything and they'll think it's true. I don't well, you show people what they want to believe, right? So this is what's happened, at least here in the United States, is our news media is turning into something that's like the confirmation bias channel, where they show you the news didn't... stories that you want to see. And deepfakes are great at that, right? So deepfakes yeah, yeah. build an alternate version of the world that we can uh, we can buy into if it flatters our uh, our prejudices or flatters our bias. But if so the metaverse, but that's we've got to start tagging content with AI well, generated fake. Right. You know, we we've got there, there is society will just come apart at the seams if we can't do that. If we can't determine what is real and what isn't. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. I want to talk about the topics that we didn't cover in the show. So when we talk to um, when we talk to our guest experts like Dave, very frequently the same topics keep coming up. Lately, it's all AI. Unfortunately, you know the world is drunk on AI right now, so it's the only topic at the at the bar. But there's there's a couple of topics that keep coming up again and again and again. Technological unemployment. I see Steve Troyer posted a question about that. You know the, this question of whether or not. Uh, New, more jobs are created versus jobs that are lost. Historically, always more jobs have been created. I see no reason for that to change. Well, but but, we but we, we've debated that. We've debated that. We've never had a technology that can impact every industry and every type of human process-based job simultaneously all at once. So this yeah. is unprecedented. So, yeah, but yeah. you're you know as I mentioned a minute ago, it the, it seems to me. You're not going to get another job when you when you get laid off by your big corporation. Uh, you're going to start a company. 
Well, uh, UBI is, you know, uh, UBI oh is the way to create tons of entrepreneurs. Right? UBI is, is a way to punt the problem created by the private sector over to government. And everybody complains about government. And by the way, they're doing the same thing with, with uh, climate change right now. Private sector creates the problem, punt the problem over to the government. Now the government and then they don't let the government fix it. Because right, exactly. they control lobbying groups and therefore control policy. Brett, this is one topic we're never going to agree on. So <laughs> I, am, I, I am so sorry. We're not going to go back down the rabbit hole. Although I promise you we'll do a show one day. We'll do a death match on the UBI. <laughs> well, you know, I'm can happy just, to entertain your delusion. Can I just challenge the um, that, that the, this thing about the jobs thing? I, I've, I've got the yeah. numbers in front of me. But I don't want to bore people with the numbers. I just want to make a couple of general points because I just want to challenge that narrative a little bit. So first of all, I've got some figures in front of me for the investment in industrial robots in the UK, France, and Germany. And uh, forget the exact numbers. For, for sake of argument, in the UK, you know, there's five robots per 10,000 people who work in car manufacturing. And in Germany, it's 2,000. Germany has way, way more robots in car manufacturing than we do. And the consequence has been that the number of people employed in the German car industry has gone up significantly because of this investment, because the robots make the industry more productive, German cars are more attractive, people buy more of them. If your cars are attractive and people are buying them, then you need more people to service them and you need uh, more people to work in advertising and marketing. So there's very interesting. If you look at the actual numbers, they've gone up. But my favorite number, and I'd love your comment on this, my favorite number is that in the UK, where productivity is appalling compared to France and Germany and places like this, it, in developed countries, a useful benchmark for, in, for, for, for this pathway to the future is car washes. Car washes are a, a very, very good example. So in an advanced country like Germany, the number of automated car washes has gone up you know, people, you know, round at the gas station, you drive your car into the car wash, get it washed. Dave, where are you going, man? In the UK, <laughs> we're, we're live, Dave. <laughs> in the UK, it's hard. So the UK has actually been replacing robots with people. Well, well so, so this is in, this is interesting. The there stats are the on robots. With human labor is cheaper than a robot, right? Particularly well, like a robot, yeah. right? not, not automation but, or software. Well, I mean, we are going to have to deal with that at some point, right? Everything. And I'm just saying, if you yeah. if you look at the numbers, it's not true. Like in some places, increasing robots increases employment. Sure. In other places, we've been chucking out robots and replacing them with people. All right, we so, have uh, a, I posted the thing the other day. I got a bunch of uh, static from people about on social media, uh, which was a picture uh, that said uh, it was a meme that said, "Wait a minute! I thought the robots were going to be doing all the grunt work." How is it that the AIs are now generating poetry and, and painting <laughs> pictures? You know, like we're still doing the grunt work. And it's true. Right. If you think about, you know, a carpenter, a plumber, uh, someone who uh, works in construction, uh, those jobs aren't going to get replaced by robots anytime soon. Uh, the jobs that are going to get replaced now are going to be bookkeeping jobs, uh, copywriters, uh, social media marketers, um, even some level of web development. These jobs, I think, have a very short shelf life ahead of them. Um, but presumably, some of those folks are going to pivot, start to use AI, and they'll be super productive, and thereby they'll be able to continue to do those jobs if they want to. Let's, If we can, please, let's steer it away from AI and robotics, only because that topic just keeps coming up like a bad penny every time we talk about it. One of the things that doesn't seem to come up on the show, which I find fascinating, is demographic, because demographics is one of the few ways we can be certain about the future. And that's because the births are already here, so we know what's going to happen. For instance, we know that the region of sub-Saharan Africa is going to add people faster than any other region on the planet. And yet very few of the people who we've interviewed have much to say about right. Africa as a Which continent. leads us to the conclusion that India and Nigeria are going to be you know, two of the top three um, countries in the world in the 2050s because of the demographic changes. Yeah, I think that there's a great deal of likelihood that those places are going to emerge as centers of innovation because they have to, right? Because they're going to. They need to create jobs more than any other place in the world. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we're following a trend that the rest of the Northern Hemisphere seems to be following, which is that we're not reproducing. Uh, so, you know, the United States, uh, if we did not have immigration, and we're certainly making it difficult to have immigration here now, if we did not have immigration, the U.S. population would not be, would not be growing. And of course, if it doesn't grow, there goes Social Security, there goes a the whole retirement scheme. So it's actually important for everybody to grow the population. Europe, 
in general is aging out. Russia aging yep. out. China has passed peak population. They're aging out. The whole yeah, Japan famously right, and South Korea has the lowest reproduction rate of any country on the planet right now. Uh, so all the growth in the future in population is going to come from the from the southern hemisphere. The other trend, the other demographic trend we never cover on the show, which I would love to get into, is the depopulation of rural environments. This is happening across the U.S. and Asia and Europe as people move to cities, as we urbanize. Um, you know, kind of the flip side of that is that people, less, fewer people and fewer young people and fewer working people are in the countryside. That's one reason why those places are so deeply conservative. Uh, so I was just reading yesterday from someone who said that there is a um, you can correlate uh, the deepening conservatism and aging out uh, and hollowing out of the of the countryside. Right. Uh, and relate that to the fact that those people don't come to the city much and they don't see the incredible diversity and the incredible transformation that's happening or their challenges of managing these complex urban environments. I, I think Japan illustrates your points extremely well, actually. I think it's a very, it's a very well-made point because in Japan you do have that depopulation. Yeah. Um, and you also have a massive investment in robotics rather than immigration. So they, they, they deal with their... How many how many robots do you think are on the planet right now, guys? I don't know, a couple of million, I suppose. Um, the, the numbers are sixty million. Uh, sixty million. Sixty robots. million. But but yeah, wow. sixty million robots. Now this includes industrial robots, but you know it now includes drones, autonomous drones. It now it would it will include autonomous vehicles in the future. So the estimates are that sometime in the twenty forties, the number of robots will exceed the number of humans on the planet. So oh, be sure. kind to robots, right? That's my. <laughs> yeah. If they're listening, if they're listening right now. Too. But, but the point about the Japanese use of it, which I think is very inventive in ways, is you know we we think about the robot as the thing that's making the car or writing our advertising text for us. But for example, one of the things that fascinates me in Japan is the use of robots to support disabled people. Yeah. So you have people. Yeah, well, that's who, an important um, part of if you look at aged care. Japan doesn't have the capability to provide. There's not enough nurses. They don't have the immigration whoa, 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 whoa. policy. Well, they're yeah. making artificial wounds. Did you see that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, hang they're, on, they're, they're talking about using that in Japan. All right, Rob. <laughs> hang on. The reason Japan doesn't have enough people to do health care and to care for elderly people is because of immigration. Let's be clear. There's an artificial constraint on the number. There's No, No, I've just said that. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I immigration They're policy. using robots. And China's going to have the same problem, right? China's yeah. not going to allow massive immigration from the Philippines to bring in nurses, for example. Um, and you know, um, and the U.S. has a shortage of, of nursing stuff, so we need robot robotics to uh, care for the aged. That would be the conclusion. Right? Yeah, m my sense is in healthcare and elder care in particular, a lot of people get displaced if they get displaced by AI. Those are going to be jobs for humans, uh, and there'll be an abundance of people available to do that kind of work. Okay, so here's another thing that came up, which Brett and I have talked about a couple of times. We've interviewed a couple of futurists on the show who refuse to put dates on their forecasts. And yeah, I don't get that. This puzzled me, and I'm, I'm going to start calling people out on it when we do the show in the yeah, future. Yeah. Because what good is a forecast if you don't put a date on it? It's like saying, oh, yeah, someday we're going to have vacation on Mars. Well, that doesn't help me plan my vacation this year or next year. So like, what good <laughs> is that? A, a prediction without a date. I'm going to have my first vacation on Mars in 2048. Okay, there you go. There you go. And you it's going to be a two-year two year vacation because that's how the uh, tr transition works. I'm hoping Katie comes. but <laughs> I, think, I think it's cowardly not to put a date on a forecast. It's not just a useless forecast because no one can – it's not actionable by anyone if you don't have a date on it. I actually think it's uh, – it, it, the futurist is dodging in a professional responsibility if they don't put a date on their forecast. I agree. I agree. You know, because it's it, what is what is futurism, if not, you know, we've we've talked about this on the show. Futurism is super forecasting, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, the further so you know, you one can of talk our first shows was with Regina right. Joseph, who's a right. super forecaster. Yeah. Right. So you can talk about forecasts, you know, three to five years, but you're getting out to 20, 30 years, you're talking about super forecasting, right? You know, that's that's the analogy. And and so you have to be talking time frames to be 
putting making it relevant in terms of where this fits into society and what the challenges will be with this. I think you must yeah. have, um, you know, you can have a range. You can have a range of possibilities or a range of dates, you know, but um, we, we have a comment here from Jonathan Alfred. It says, I predict futures will start putting dates you, on Jonathan. forecasts in 2027. Very well done. Thank what's you. Uh, actually, what's the most interesting forecast we've had on the show? Thinking out loud. Ouch, that's uh, let me think. I have to go back through. You know, the one thing that I that was interesting to me was one of the early guests you brought on, Rob, which was Andrew Hessel. Oh yeah, he's awesome. This uh, thing around synthetic biology yeah. came up actually a few times, and he was quoted a few times yeah. by other futurists, including by the uh, the food futurist. I forgot his name now, but um, Tony. Tony. Yeah, um, you know, synthetic biology is one of those futuristic things that where the sun never fully rises. We've been hearing about synthetic biology for 15 years. Um, by all rights, it ought to be a gigantic business. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the idea of synthetic biology is uh, it's a step beyond biotech or a step beyond um, um, bioengineering. We actually are reprogramming the cell. You're using the cell's um, internal chemistry to program it like a computer. Uh, to produce different things. And if you think about the phenomenal generative energy of biology on this planet, you know, all life in some form and all energy in some form is coming from the sun. Uh, and we're converting that energy into, into various life forms. There's a whole long chain, you know, basically extending that energy as it circulates around the planet. Uh, that's a very powerful generative force. And it should be able uh, to help us generate new forms of energy or new forms of power, new forms of food, new forms of medicine, even materials. Uh, they're talking about programming cells to grow a house, like a tree. Uh, now, that's a vision. We're pretty far from that vision. We have seen one spectacular application of synthetic biology, which was uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, so the, the, uh, those vaccines would not be possible if it, if it weren't for 10 years of investment in synthetic biology. Um, but that topic keeps coming up. It's one of those future-focused topics that I'm interested in. It's a bit like the metaverse. It's like the thing we keep talking about. We expect it to happen someday. So my takeaway on that is that sometimes the future takes a long time to arrive. So that's one of the reasons why people are hesitant to put a date on their forecasts. Um, and But the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. And that's true. It's not fully formed. But it, you know, yeah, but that's a good point, right? You, there was a time where, like, if you wanted to see the future of mobile, you just had to jump on a plane and go to Tokyo, and you could get a great snapshot of what was coming around the world in a year or two. You know, um, Rob, can I, a, can I add something real quick? You, so, yeah. One of the things that you had brought up, actually, in a conversation we had was the the, the interesting factors of when you bring futurists together and you cross the streams like in Ghostbusters. And for example, uh, when you and Brett were talking earlier about India and Nigeria, I was thinking about uh, other climate futurists who say by the time that happens, those two areas will also be uninhabitable uh, because of climate transformation. And so right. then we, we start to look at the world through these different lenses to bring them together, it also allows for different conversations to have about what what do we do in these scenarios? Yeah, there's gonna be mass migrations of people. We're already seeing that now. I mean, it's already in progress. There's, you know, climate refugees. What was what was the number? Something like 20 million? No, so so la last year was 65 million. And most of that was because million. of Pakistan. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we're going to have the uh, we're going to have the chief, um, the head of communications, Vineom, incidentally, Brian, coming on the show in the future. But um, have you guys. So I, this, Katie and I ask everyone this question these days, but have you watched Extrapolations yet? The Apple TV series. It, if you want to see how. Uh, you know, a fairly realistic version of how climate change, the use of AI, the role of corporations in setting policy, eco-refugees, air quality, water quality, food quality, you know, all of those things potentially play out with the mix of climate change and AI. It's a really, really interesting thought exercise and, and does yes. align quite closely with where both Katie and I think the world might 
end up potentially. And it's a warning for us because, um, you know, we're just not doing enough to prepare for the future. And that's, again, something that I think, Rob, that, you know, we've seen come up time and time again in conversations we've had with people is that, um, you know, there's not a lot of, um, you know, we we argue about what's going to happen in the future. We debate if AI is going to take jobs. We don't prepare for the fact that AI is going to change the way we work, right? We we know that food scarcity is going to be a problem. We're not preparing for, you know, solving that, right? It's a topic that comes up a lot, uh, you know, for instance, when we spoke to uh, Stefan Lindstrom from um, from Finland's Ministry of the Future, effectively, uh, he's their Minister of Technology. Right. Um, you know, he pointed out to us that the difficulty the EU has in trying to regulate things like artificial intelligence, even trying to define it, like trying to define it. So there's a defect in a democratic society. If you're running an autocracy, it's pretty easy. You can just decree a diktat, and then everybody has to conform. And we see that happening in China and elsewhere. Uh, but in, in Western democracies, um, the defect is that they have to wait for the problem to arrive. They're incapable of preemptively dealing with a problem, even if we're pretty sure it's going to occur. There are just too many, uh, there are too many uh, ways to stop the process. There's too many checks in the system, and it's just too easy to, to stop someone. Uh, and so here's, here's the way I would put that. The future doesn't have a lobbyist. Right. Existing industry has a lobbyist. Existing groups have lobbyists. Uh, Interests are very powerful in government. But unfortunately, nobody's representing the future in Congress. Yeah. Congress barely knows what's going on. Period. I mean, they don't even understand Facebook. I mean, it's just like. But this this raises a really good point is how are we going to deal with getting, you know, um, really future-proof regulation in place. Like I know, for example, looking at the banking sector, the regulatory infrastructure we have is is already not fit for purpose for the way, um, you know, and this is why we're starting to see bank failures in the United States. Um, we need to completely restructure that. But to try and get state and federal regulators to, you know, allow someone else to take over their perceived responsibilities is just like it takes acts of Congress and so forth. It's so difficult to even conceptualize. But, um, you know, you, you, I mean, regulation around AI as a great example is, you know, do, you know, we don't have people in charge that have the skills to sort of think about this. I mean, you that's know. partly because uh, Republicans in Congress have killed the, the technology office. They used to have an excellent group that advised them. Uh, but that was a political decision because they don't want to hear about it. They want to know about it. We've got a, a question from Jimmy Gilberti. Hi, Jimmy. Uh, good to see you here. Uh, the question is topics on energy to support all the innovation. So energy does come up from time to time, certainly when we talk about autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, which is a topic that we've covered a couple of times, uh, Brad Templeton, for instance. And we had Ramez Nam, who is an expert on energy, future energy. And by the way, that's a great episode if you haven't yes, listened Mez to it. Ramez is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ramez is cool. He's like the cool futurist. And now he's a venture capitalist. And so now he's actually putting money where his mouth is, which, you know, that's his, you can't get more futuristic than that. And yes. um, he's very calm about our energy future. He's extraordinarily optimistic. I would say I'm, I'm more anxious about the energy in the future than he is. Yeah, he was quite, um, quite optimistic. Yeah, it was a good show. Uh, you know, the, the uh, topic that just came up the other day in, in a recent recording was uh, about recharging long haul trucks, you know, like the big uh, 18-wheeler trucks. A great candidate for an electric vehicle. It makes sense to electrify them. Diesel is nasty. Uh, but if you had 10 of those trucks trying to recharge their batteries, it would pull down as much power as a small village or a town. And we just simply don't have the generative capacity right now to support that. Uh, we don't have the generation where the trucks are. So that was going to require a rethinking of our energy grids. Um, and that'll probably be a big project. It's a little weird to me that we just passed this multi-billion dollar or trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill in the United States. <laughs> and it didn't have anything in it about smart grid or future uh, grid. What a mess. No smart contracts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's sad. I mean, you see it all the time. You got one side that's like, we'll just build more nuclear, you know, or you have another side that's, uh, you know, so many people complaining about EVs. Uh, you know, not everyone can drive an electric electric vehicle because of all the mining and all this stuff. You know, I mean. There's a lot of complicated sides to it. <laughs> we need um, to get we need to get a nuclear futurist on the show. Actually, yeah, we do. talk about next generation nuclear tech, like the thorium reactors, tokamak reactors, stuff like that. 
for uh, for yes. the people who are watching the live stream, Dave Birch is uh, is giving a, is peppering us with very funny forecasts. I'm going to read a few of them now. This is from Dave. Uh, the U.S. will break up just like the Soviet Union did. A new religion will start on TikTok. I'm with him on that. I think it is a new religion. And social media will be regulated like smoking. Good work, Dave. We should all be doing a little future forecasting here, I think. All right. I agree yeah, well, with all three of those. <laughs> Especially the first one. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you know, the likelihood, I mean, if you look at things now um, in the United States, you know, particularly with what's happening in Florida and, and so forth, I, oh, you know, it's hard to imagine at a time when the United States could be united in purpose again, unless it's maybe a war with China. But, you know, who wants that to, to bring the US people together? Um, but almost every um, depiction of the future when it comes to the United States depicts the United States as breaking apart. Yeah. Ideologically. Like California becoming two parts, yeah, Northern Lisa, California, Southern. Don't get me started. That's the history of the United States. We've been through much, much worse in this country. And it's not just the civil war that I'm referring to. So it's a pretty resilient place. I mean, that said, right now, we seem to have opt-in opt reality, like where you can choose your reality that's problematic for a democracy. If you can't agree on what the facts are, if you can't agree on what the situation actually is, then it's going to be pretty hard to talk about a remedy or a fix for it. But I think oh, autonomous cities point. are going Sorry. to be... Go ahead, um, uh, autonomous cities are going to be a big part of this as well. I mean, I could definitely see if he's not already working on it. I think he mentioned it once, but Elon Musk mentioned uh, possibly creating a an independent corporate uh, city somewhere you know maybe in texas i i don't know well right? he wants to do it as a trial for what the smart city on mars is going to look like which makes sense right elon musk well i i uh i can't put well, my this faith is not his in... best week i would say <laughs> oh yeah i can't put my <laughs> our, faith our in daughter calls him alien musk but anyway <laughs> who's perpetuating uh our 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 human potential by distorting facts and truths and this Amen. is this is certainly not where we can go. It's like it's like Rob to your point the uh, the confirmation bias channel. You know the CBC, your favorite channel on on TV today, only confirms what you already believe, and is accelerating a race to the bottom of human potential. It is it's actually something that we could use more discussion around. Well, we've only got a few minutes before the top of the hour. It, it is designed as an hour show. So um, I thought um, what we could do now is talk about what's coming up in the second season. Yeah of the futurists um we hope to have for you um at least three guests that are in the works right now um the first is peter diamandis who um is uh, we are looking at scheduling right now hopefully that comes off um, abundance yep dr yes. robert zubrin um from the mars society um he's got a new book out on the case for nuclear actually case for nukes so um we'll see uh see if we can get uh, dr zubrin on and we just asked david brin to introduce us to the leading eco um uh science fiction writer eco climate science fiction writer day which is none other than kim stanley robinson so fingers crossed this would be a major get for us so um so there's there's a bit of a glimpse of uh, some of the the guests coming up in the second season who who else do you guys want to see on the show this year oh wow right. i mean there's so many <laughs> it's hard to say Oh, well, I like to see Elon Musk because I oh know he's God. controversial. I yeah. know, but listen, some Gag people love him, some people don't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Great. But I, I think that would be good one. <laughs> Jesus, I'd I like to see I, time. There is I'd no like spring. to see James, James Gunn on the show. Okay. Great. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm I'm working on a number of guests right now, but it's a little too soon for me to say who will be joining us. Uh, one fellow I want to have on soon is Michael Margolis, who's more of a hey. philosophical thinker. Uh, Michael. We've had some success with people who uh, think about storytelling as a way to define ourselves. And, and that might seem odd for a show about futurists, but if you think about what scenario planning really is, you know, when you posit a scenario about the future, you're telling a story. You're really, you know, anytime you're projecting something past five years, you're no longer extrapolating from existing trends. You're telling a good story. 
And Michael thinks deeply about that. So we'll be having him on the show soon as well. Fantastic. I'd like to get Peter Schwartz on, on the show. Oh, for sure. Uh, you got to right? do that, yeah, Brian. Yeah. That's a great suggestion. He is the original scenario planner. Hey, for the folks who are listening, thank you very kindly for your support. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for telling your friends about it. It means an enormous amount to us. Uh, so you can see this is a labor of love. Um, Brett came to me with the idea more than a year ago, and we were kicking it around. We are like, let's just do it. Let's reclaim that term, futurists. Let's inject a little new meaning into it. And this is a way, debate I had with uh, Mike Walsh, actually, whether futurist was a positive term or a negative term. But we got to get him on, too, actually. We should, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. and, uh, <laughs> and, and so thank you, everybody, who's, who's been listening and uh, supporting us along the way. That's been really great. We've gotten great, in feedback, great feedback, suggestions, comments, and questions. All of that means so much to us. So thank you all for that. Katie, Brian, it's great to have you join the club. Our growing club of futurists, our hearty band of futurists, uh, charting a path into the future. Uh, so thank you all very much for joining us here. It's top of the hour, so it's probably time so. The, for... There remains only one thing to say, which yeah. is, we will see you in the, in the future. future. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all. Bye, everybody. Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.